Well, good morning. Give uh, everyone welcome in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And um, as you, well, you'd only know if you got my email on Friday. The elders just made the decision Thursday late afternoon that uh, this Sunday at least, um, well, we're all wearing masks. And uh, so I appreciate everyone being able to, uh, to do that. And, um, and then a reminder, uh, this is just a normal protocol we have, that as we're leaving, you wait till Mark will come and usher each person out. And Ginger and I will be outside and able to, uh, to greet you. But we're trying to uh, be as safe as we can with the present surge in our area of, um, of the coronavirus and trying to stop the streak of finding out each week that yet another church person uh, has gotten the virus. Uh, we have no indication that anyone has gotten the virus because they were here, but of course we want to, to keep that particular record going. So thank you uh, for that, keeping that. Now let's uh, prepare uh, our hearts uh, for worship.
you know, also, uh, forgot to also welcome those who are following us online. Appreciate that you're also worshiping with us. And uh, just remind, we want to thank uh, Nancy King for filling in again uh, today uh, for us. For our call to worship, I want to read from uh, Psalm verse 16. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. And we do come, our Father, we join in with this chorus and say, great is the Lord. And we uh, give you praise now through our Lord Jesus Christ. Great is our Lord Jesus Christ. And great is the Holy Spirit whom you have sent who is with us even now. And we pray now for your spirit. So to fill our hearts and our minds, our thoughts, be focused upon you, and that you will take delight in the worship we bring. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Great is the Lord. folks to come in a little bit later and, pro- and don't get my emails that I sent on Friday morning. We've had to make this service, at least for this Sunday, I'm afraid mass required. So I'm going to ask everyone to have a mask. And uh, it's, 
It's tough to have sung that song, holding those long notes with mask. Now, Mario's who did it. I selected that song before I knew we were going to do mass required. Otherwise, I would have made it a little bit easier to, um, to sing. Now, let's um, uh, continue in our worship by the confession of our faith. We're using the Heidelberg Catechism. Christian, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Let's now pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And our Father in heaven, we do give you praise for your greatness. We praise you that you are the only and the great creator of all that there is, that you merely spoke forth all that there is into being. When there was nothing, you spoke. And then that which we know, even that which we do not know, has come into existence. Praise you that you are a great creator. We praise you that you are a great Lord and King over your creation that you are here with us in this very sanctuary. So you are with your creation, hundreds of thousands of light years away, watching over the stars that you call forth by name. You are everywhere in all of your full being. You are the God who is omnipresent, the God who is omnipotent, the God who is omniscient, all-knowing, and we praise you for your greatness. We praise you, our God, that you are a great redeemer, that you have chosen us before the foundation of the world, that you have caused us to be saved by the work of God the Son and his work of atonement upon the cross, that you have brought us into that salvation by God the Holy Spirit, who has awakened us from the dead, given us hearts and the spirit by which we could receive this gospel 
repent of our sins and, and turn to Jesus Christ in faith. How great are you, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. May we all the more desire and strive to honor your name and to serve your kingdom, to do your will here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray, our Father, for the provisions for our daily bread so that all the more that we may serve you and honor you. We pray for your provisions, our Father. We think of our own country. And as the pandemic continues and even has, has surged throughout our country, we, we think particularly of our lake area. Uh, most of us know uh, neighbors who have uh, contracted the virus, and we pray for them. Pray for their healing and safety. Our Father, we lift up those who have lost loved ones, and be it by the virus or some other cause, we pray for those who are grieving. We lift up our nation before you in the midst of all the turmoil that is taking place. And we pray, our Father, we pray for safety uh, for our officers as, as they have already been placing their lines uh, in, um, in defending our, our own nation's capital, uh, as well as uh, throughout this country. And we pray for them and your protection of them. We pray, our Father, uh, for uh, our own uh, church. And we pray for our safety. We pray that we may remain ever a light for this community. And so you're working us to be in tune. Probably we reach out and care for our neighbors. We pray for the forgiveness of our sins. We pray that we may grant to us that same spirit of our Heavenly Father uh, to be uh, giving, to be forgiving, to be merciful, even to those who would call us enemies. We pray, our Father, for our protection, that you would lead us not in temptation, but all the more protect us from the evil one who does want to tempt us into evil. Protect us from the the fears, the, the dangers, uh, from the uh, desires that are of this world. And we make this prayer acknowledging that to you belongs the kingdom, all of the power, and all of the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to either turn with me in your Bibles uh, to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 17, or you can find the text in your insert uh, in the bulletin uh, as well. Hebrews 12, 3 through 17, we're getting near uh, the end of this letter, and Lord willing, we'll finish this in the first week of February. Do you know what January the 21st will mark? It will be the anniversary of the first known case of coronavirus in our country. Now, no matter what perspective anyone might have on this subject, I think we are all experiencing the same feeling. We are weary of it. I tell you, wearing these masks is just getting to be, it's just getting to be a bummer, and particularly having to try to, to worship and sing songs like we just sang we're just tired of it, tired of not being able to meet together and, 
and just sort of things that we normally have done before. Well, our author is writing to people who are growing weary. Now, not because of some pandemic, they are growing weary because of persecution. And he is now going to point them to Jesus, to, to encourage them. So look with me at verses 3 and 4. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, and in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So our author is fixing upon Jesus' suffering, and he makes reference to such hostility. Well, he had spoken just in the verse before what that hostility was. It was the cross and the shame that went with that cross. To die by crucifixion, well, we know this. This is a death of immeasurable pain. But the great harm, at least at the ancient times, of that kind of execution lay not only in how painful it was, but the shame that came with it. It was an execution that was reserved for slaves or for uh, insurrectionists, whom the Romans wanted to make sure how lowly they were regarded. So we're told that Jesus despised that shame, and he regarded it as nothing in comparison to what, again, that verse said earlier, to the joy that was said before him. And our author now wants his people, his readers, look to that Savior, look to their Lord, so that they will not falter. And that brings us back again to what the purpose of the letter is, was the reason it was written. Our author's readers, at least as far as the author was concerned, was in, were in danger of falling away from their faith. The pressures to renounce their faith are starting to get to them. They, these are probably Jewish believers, their families, their religious community. No doubt they're pressuring them to give up what they would have regarded as scandalous, scandalous beliefs about Jesus as the Messiah and calling them, come on back. Come back to the faith of, of your followers, of, of your fathers, of following the Mosaic law. Now, that's why our author has spent so much time, so many chapters, displaying how Jesus fulfilled the Mosaic law. And then there's the pressure of persecution itself. And that's our author's concern right now. His readers, he says, are not being killed. They're not shedding blood, not yet. But they are facing hostility. And that's most likely related to, to at least what their neighbors and their family think is following a shameful religion. You have to understand how scandalous their faith would have been. It would have been scandalous to follow a crucified Messiah. The Gentiles, well, they would have considered that kind of Messiah a complete failure. The Jews would have regarded Jesus as being cursed by God. And then there's the scandal of their, of their very devotion to Jesus. Remember, and, and you no doubt, anyone who, 
has come to the Lord at a later time in life, maybe as a teenager or college or just in your adult years, you understand it had been a complete turn in their lives. They became different, different from the way they were before and, and certainly different from their neighbors now. In the eyes of their neighbors, they would be, well, they'd be fanatics or even worse. They would be considered now self-righteous people because here they are now. They've consciously changed their lives, trying to live lives of love and of holiness. Now, they may, as a result of all this, think about what the persecution might be. It could simply be that of being ostracized, or maybe some were beginning to lose jobs. We know from chapter 10, verse 34, that some were in prison. Some had had their property plundered. And so this following Jesus business, as exciting as it probably first was, well, it's starting to wear heavily. The spirits are flagging. They don't recall signing up for this. And perhaps they're beginning to wonder if God has forgotten them. Or maybe God is even punishing them. Well, let's continue with this, beginning in verse 5. Our author continues, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In this long passage, there's one point that our author is trying to make here. And this is far from being a sign that God has forgotten them or that he is somehow just punishing them. Their sufferings signal that God's regarding them actually as his children. Now, it might seem here that our author has uh, kind of surpassed his, his creative limits to try to find a silver lining in the persecution that's happening. But let's again, let's, let's consider his reasoning. He's quoting here from Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. And he's making the same point as Solomon did at that time. And we adults, we who have been children and now we're parents, we understand the logic. You recall, like, maybe when you were children, and you may have said this to your parents, or now that you're parents, you heard this from your children, 
Well, Johnny's parents let him stay up late at night. And what is always the parents' response? We are not Johnny's parents. And what was meant by that? Well, Johnny does not belong to me. And I'm not responsible for his welfare. You belong to me. And so I make the rules and I enforce them in order to do what is best for you. Now, our author concedes that earthly parents, um, they discipline, as he says, as it seemed best to them. Meaning, well, sometimes they actually didn't do that good of a job. Either they were not wise in their discipline, or maybe they disciplined for their own selfish reasons. Maybe they just disciplined thinking you had done something wrong when you were innocent. And in any of these ways, God is just the opposite. He disciplines always for our good with the intent to sanctify us, that is, to share in his holiness. Now, we might prefer to be left alone because of the pain. But, you know, even then, thinking back then about that discipline that we did not enjoy, in our adulthood, what do we do? We typically look back to those times and we're thankful. We're thankful that our parents cared enough to make restrictions and to discipline us. Well, the same case here. Later, this discipline from the Lord will yield a life that is holy and that is at peace. And so the lesson then is that this discipline of persecution, it's not merely a trial that we just got to get through to the other side. But if we take it with faith, if we will endure it, then we're not only going to just get through it, we're going to become better because of it. Now let's continue here in verses 12 and 13. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. He sounds like a physical therapist, doesn't he? Well, he's pointing his Jewish readers to another piece of scripture that they would have recognized. Isaiah 35, 3. It says, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Now, he might be part physical therapist here, but he's also, to think of it more in our terms, he's a coach. And he's encouraging his team, it's at halftime, and they're feeling pretty beat up, and they're behind to get back in there and, and make that comeback in the second half. Or maybe he's like that boxing manager, and he's, he's trying to spur on that boxer who doesn't feel like getting back uh, for another round. Or maybe like that platoon leader, and he's trying to rally his men to, to press forward Go, you know, face this assault, repel it, and go forward against the enemy. Well, the next thing he's going to do here in the next verse, he's going to give more practical instruction about how to actually win the day. So in verse 14, he says, Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
And for those of you who are members of the church, here's a pop quiz for you. Can you recall what you vowed to do in the last question of your vow? Well, it was to study the purity and the peace of the church, these two things. Now, it's a tough combination to possess. And the reason why is there's oftentimes why there's strife in a church is because, well, members differ on what accounts for holiness or how to achieve holiness. And it kind of the, the way that we tend to think about these things, we think, well, if you're going to be at peace with everyone, that means you're just going to compromise on what you believe is right before the Lord. But here we're to put the things together. I mean, either one, just having peace, just having holiness, that's difficult to do. But we're to hold both together. Well, our author recognizes how difficult that is. And that's why he's telling us, you got to strive for it. you got to work at it. The first step to take is taking that step. And we're never going to progress if we're kind of just resigned to a failure. And there's definitely going to be no progress if we think, when the other person takes a step, then I will take it. No, we have to strive for peace in the church. We have to strive for personal holiness. And we have to relate to others in such a way that's going to promote their walk along with our own walk with the Lord. So what is required is a commitment to strive for the good of one's brothers and sisters in in Jesus Christ. Now that's the thing about our faith, our religion. We're not ever called to live the Christian life as individuals. We're called to do it as a family, as a united body of Jesus Christ. And so our own sanctification, we're being told, is wrapped up and how well we strive to support, to help one another. Our author's already talked about this back in chapter 10. He had said, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. We need each other to live out this Christian life. So what then should such a striving encompass? Well, involves, one thing, is just this watching out for one another. We're to, in the church community, we're to pay attention to each other and look uh, on how to help each other with three specifics in mind. And that word, by the way, that we're going to look at in verse 15, says, see to it. It's the exact same word that, that Peter's going to use it when he's talking to the elders. And he's telling the elders that they need to oversee Uh, their church. So in verse 15, first thing that he tells them to look for, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Way back in chapter 4, our author had used that same term. When he had cautioned his people to take care that they not fail to reach their rest. Don't fail like their fathers did in the wilderness. When they started out, none of them made it. They failed. Don't do the same thing here. And watch out for each other. Watch over each one lest anyone gives up with, that they might fail to stay the course. 
Now, I wonder as well, as he's writing about this, about failing to obtain the grace of God, if he's connecting their failure to endure with, again, with their relationships with one another. He's already exhorted them, as we've seen, to strive for peace. Now, note the very next thing he tells them here in verse 15. Okay, He's saying, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Now, let's think about this. Persecution can be hard to bear, certainly. But when there is a strong community and they're bearing it together, well, then that persecution can be withstood. Indeed, it can even become a stimulus to depress on all the more, to be all the more determined to follow Jesus. But there are two cracks that can let in devastating destruction to the church. And he's, this is the first one that he mentions, this bitterness where would bitterness come in? What would he have in mind? Well, let's think about this. He's already said that some were imprisoned. Well, that means some were not. He said that some had had their property plundered. Well, that means some did not. You got some who were really persecuted and some who less persecuted, maybe missing it all together. Are they somehow favored? Maybe, maybe they're not as bold about their witness. Maybe they're not doing what they ought to do, and that's why they're getting it easier than, than I'm getting it. Or maybe what's going on in there is like what happened in the early Jerusalem church. And some members were being overlooked and having their needs met. Any of these scenarios can plant the root of bitterness And that root will spring up in a church community, and it will create dissent. And the other crack here is sexual immorality and worldliness. Look with me in 16 and 17. Again, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So there there are many, it's probably what he's got in mind here, there are many who leave the faith. We know this. And they'll typically say this, that they, well, they've outgrown it. They can no longer believe the all these doctrines, and they certainly can't believe these stories of the Bible that they learned in Sunday school. Sunday school always seems to get hit, you know. I can't believe what I was raised to believe in Sunday school. And so they say, I've outgrown the faith. Well, maybe, perhaps. But more likely, the simple cause is just plain old sin. Indeed, I would say probably in most cases, such persons, they haven't just, it's not that they've outgrown the belief system so much as, well, they've outgrown the sexually moral system of the faith. They care now. They like the pleasures of the world. And the truth be told, 
that giving up this newfound freedom to live the way they want to live is a lot harder to give up than this supposed intellectual objections that they have to the faith. Sin leads to apostasy. And so our author is saying, look, take care that you, the whole church, look after one another so that this sin of bitterness or this sin of immorality does not rise up and and cause you or cause anyone to fall out of their journey to to gain their eternal inheritance. Now, as we think back about lessons uh, from this, I want to think about this again. Go back to this word that he speaks on about the reason the people are being persecuted. We talked about how strange it is to think that, uh, well, God, we're to look at this, well, this persecution is discipline from God. Well, it's not only that it's odd, but it's really can even seem like perverted reasoning. I mean, you think about it. You have believers here who are not being persecuted for mischief, not being persecuted for sin, but for their faithfulness to God. Anyone would ask, how could God then discipline them for that? Is God sadistic? Does he delight in giving pain to those who are faithful to him, who love him? And there are many who have left the faith with that very thought in mind. Whether it's persecution or just plain old suffering, they think God has abandoned them. God has unjustly punished them. But then there are others, probably many more. They have gone through the same persecution or they have gone through the same type of suffering And they've come out all the better for it. Now, I'm not talking about here about how persecution fuels the, the growth of the church like it has done throughout the ages. I'm thinking about its effect on individuals who have received this persecution or just have received suffering. Some of them, in other words, were like Jesus' disciples. They experienced persecution as a badge of honor. The first time that they are physically persecuted, they, they are brought before the Sanhedrin, the council, and they are literally beaten. Okay? And this is their response. We're told it in Acts 5.41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Apostle Paul was that way. He expressed his earnest desire was to share in Christ's sufferings. As he says in Philippians 3.10, becoming like him in his death. And then there are others like Betsy Ten Boom. We, we talked about her, I don't know, a couple of, two or three weeks ago. She is the one who was sent to a uh, Nazi concentration camp. And for her, it drew her closer to Jesus. Remember how her own persecution 
It gave her greater insight to the persecution of her Lord, and it caused her to love him all the more, to be filled all the more with adoration for him. There are others for which persecution has enhanced their sanctification. Now that's the point here of our author. He said, again, back in verse 10, he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. That's what happened to Betsy's sister, Corey Ten Boom. Now she suffered persecution along with her sister, and particularly when she saw the, the testimony of her sister, it began to change her. She became more compassionate. She became more loving. Eventually, she would become more forgiving, even of her persecutors. It made her more holy. And indeed, it's this effect on one's sanctification and one's devotion to God that really has made the persecuted life in some ways more blessed than the life that is free from suffering. You know, there's a great demand in persecuted countries from Christians to have teachers from our country to come and teach the Bible and theology. There there are teachers who have gone and sometimes secretly into secret seminaries and they're teaching the Bible and teaching theology and and, and the Christians are just eating it up. But I know of no demand to come and teach them to live, to teach them how to live for Christ or how to know God more deeply. Now, it's not that I, I think Christians in persecuted countries are just by nature more godly and more devoted, but you think about it. When there is no social benefit for following Jesus, when actually there is a greater likelihood for persecution, well, it tends to sharpen one's love for their Savior and their determination to follow him. Now, look, I I have not suffered from persecution. But I do think I can see what our author is trying to teach his own people here. I mean, I learned long ago to stop asking God why when bad things happen to me. Now, I'll be honest, I'll tell you why I I stopped asking was I did not care to think about what he might say to me, which is, well, you want to know what your behavior really calls for? So I I didn't want to think about that kind of stuff. But I did learn to ask what. What did God want me to learn through this suffering. And that's when I could profit from it. I mean, I learned things like, well, I learned about my impatience. I learned about my my critical spirit. I started to list more things, but I think you, you, you know enough. You get the point. Is this, a life of success, a life of ease, does not force us to go deep inside. Suffering does. And when we see the, that suffering, it's not punishment from God, but when we do understand it to be a discipline for his, for his son, for his daughter, 
In other words, when we see that sufferings actually has a purpose, and that purpose is to make us holy, then it's holiness rather than bitterness or rebellion that's going to be more likely the result. You know, we all love this verse from Romans. We know that for those who love God, all things, what? Work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. It's so comforting, particularly in times like this. But it's the next verse that reveals what the good is. It is to be conformed to the image of his son. So what we're to understand is that whether it be persecution, whether it just be the normal sufferings of life and trials of life, all these things from the hand of God are disciplined for us, for our good, to become like Jesus. That's a good purpose, isn't it? That's a good reason for us to not grow weary. We give you praise, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ, who underwent persecution far greater than any of us shall ever go, greater sufferings than any of us shall ever have to endure, greater trials, and all for the joy that was set before him. We know that joy was that we, that he might win us to become your children. And that someday for us, we too shall experience the glory, the glory that was his, the glory that will now become ours. Oh, we thank you, our Father, for what we have before us. May we not grow weary, be ever more determined, whatever comes our way, to live to the honor, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for the Lord, for singing the Lord's by shepherd. Now I understand the the tune I chose, which is my favorite tune. That's why I chose is not as well known. So Nancy's going to uh, play it through one time. Let's stand.
seated. Before we're about to do the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, did everyone get a cup? Is there anyone needing a cup? If so, I've got Mark back there, and he'd be glad to bring you one. Everyone okay? The institution of the Lord's Supper comes to us from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The very thing that we have been talking about is the very reason for which our Lord has given us this sacrament. When we grow weary physically, We need food, we need drink to nourish our bodies and to refresh us. And so as we grow weary spiritually, our Lord has given to us this bread, this cup. He has given to us spiritually his very body, that we may be nourished, strengthened again in our faith. I mean, it's tough out there, and our Lord understands that. And so he's given us this to remind us that he's with us, he's never forgotten us, he is still here and we're to partake of him. Our Lord Jesus Christ, as we do come to your table, all the more we do look to you to feed us. Feed us with, you have fed us with your word, feed us now with this sacrament, with these elements all the more we would take strength and find our hope and comfort in you. In your name we pray. Amen. If you take the cup and on that small end you'll find the little piece of bread. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take eat. This is my body given for you. You may now want to be peeling back the other side of it. In the same manner, our Savior also took the cup. And after having given thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink ye all of it. We give you praise, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ. We give you praise for his incarnation by which he took upon himself our very flesh, and in that flesh made atonement for our sins upon the cross. We thank you that though he died and was buried, yet he rose again in that flesh, and in his resurrection we look to our own to come. 
We gave you praise that he has ascended on high in that flesh, that he is at your right hand even now, serving as our high priest, ever interceding for us. We give you praise for the promise that we can hold true, hold fast to. He shall return again in all of his glory to consummate his kingdom. And we say, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, let's stand and we're closing in the last two verses. The Lord is my shepherd. forward to usher you out and Ginger and I'll be outside and we can greet you then but we ask that you not congregate uh, in the sanctuary and now may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity amen